0: This episode is sponsored by Amber Group and the HBAR Foundation. Stay tuned for more information on both of those later in this episode. What's up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where two times every week we talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, music, sports, art, politics, basically anyone with a good story to tell. Now, One of the main sort of underlying narratives of the crypto space for the past five or six years has been institutional adoption, conjecture as to whether it's actually happening, and then obviously seeing it start to progress over the past few years. But there's still questions as to where we are on that uh, sort of curve of full institutional and even mainstream adoption. So I wanted to bring on a guest that can discuss this in great detail. So she's the head of institutional coverage for Falcon X. So she's the perfect person who basically studies this all day, every day, I would imagine. Aya Kentorovich, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us.
1: Thank you for having me, Scott. Excited to be here.
0: Thank you. So first of all, can you just give us a bit of background on yourself and also tell us more about Falcon X and what your role is there?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I started my career off uh, as a banking capital markets consultant. Uh, did that before joining my first startup. I was the first hire of a company called Tegas, uh, where we were outsourcing buy side analysts at institutional hedge funds. Um, always had a crypto itch uh, and had the opportunity to join Pantera Capital. So, joined. They're working for Dan Moorhead, Paul Veratetaket, Joey Krug uh, on the venture side of the business. And we were really seeing everything and anything under the hood. And so anything across from exchanges, infrastructure, um, B2C, B2B uh, providers and uh, fell across Falcon X and through due diligence, really loved the team um, and the vision. And so joined now over two and a half years ago. Uh, built out our sales trading desk at FalconX, And what FalconX is, high level, we are a cryptocurrency financial services company. We offer trading, clearing, and credit for only institutions across the globe. Um, and so really, you know, the ability for any institution to come in to buy, sell, trade, uh, send, you know, borrow, lend, et cetera, of any cryptocurrency um, that's approved by our team, uh, and you know, in addition to providing market color and and really teaching uh, these institutions what cryptocurrency is and the use cases for these today.
0: Institutions is such a broad term, and I, and so I yes. think that uh, it's very confusing probably for mainstream when we talk about institutional adoption. Does that mean? well, look, MicroStrategy bought some Bitcoin, it's in their treasury. Or does that mean a whole bunch of family offices and crypto-based hedge funds who we know are in crypto anyways, who are buying it? Or does, you know, what is really the definition of institution for you? And how do you... I guess, separated under different categories when you're actually approaching these companies.
1: Yes, yeah, so I'm so happy you asked uh, because in crypto, we love labels. I say this all the time. We love you. You're even chuckling. We love labels. Um, and so, you know, when you peel back, what is an institution? Uh, it's, a, it's all of the above that you just mentioned. So we service all of those. Uh, Uh, Today, I would say our largest institutional bucket is going to be these traditional asset managers. Uh, So these are traditional lending desks, um, traditional uh, trading shops, prop shops that now have a crypto desk or a dedicated cryptocurrency employee that's focused on trading or research in cryptocurrencies. Uh, So that's very exciting. So these are going to be multi-billion plus uh, traditional asset managers, very, very large Um, And then from there, you have, I would say, kind of your traditional venture funds. Now, these venture funds typically will make their first investment or have made their first investment in some sort of crypto equity stake. And now they're exploring uh, projects that are equity that have the ability to tokenize in the future. Um, And so, you know, those are another bucket of traditional institutions. The next is just your smaller family offices. Um, and small, like, um, you know, very, very small funds. Uh, And then you also have hedge funds. So these are your classic uh, high-frequency shops, systematic shops. Uh, They're trading basis trades, doing exchange arbitrage. These are API-driven players. And then the last bucket that we also call institutions are retail aggregators. So these are uh, what you would imagine the PayPals or the Revoluts of the world. Uh, They're facing the retail, but they themselves are the institution um, that need liquidity on the back end.
0: That's really interesting because if, I think if you asked your average person or crypto enthusiast and said, "What does institutional adoption mean?" they would point at Tesla and MicroStrategy or start talking about, "Well, you know, endowments are coming and pension funds and these massive institutions." But you're really saying that that's not who's here at this moment. They're the ones who make the headlines, but clearly, that's not who your average customer is.
1: That's a good question. I would say, um, you know. The endowments and foundations are here, but they're here in very small size, and they're still doing fund-to-fund investments. So for us, directly to your point, we won't see them today they're not getting direct exposure yet in crypto now that being said those conversations are happening so we have received phone calls uh, we are working on conversations with helping endowments actually gain access to cryptocurrency directly but no you know i would say not yet um and you know we we work with a number of companies and allocating crypto to their treasuries but i would say where it's very very exciting is this much larger scope of Wall street that's getting involved inside
0: yeah, that, that, that makes perfect sense. And I think it's interesting you talked about venture capital obviously being so interested in this space. It's something that I talk about all the time, because yet again, the term institutional adoption just gives people this image of some company buying Bitcoin, right? And I think that probably more money, I mean, you see Paradigm raised another $2.5 billion fund, for example, just, you know, in the last week you see that I think the biggest institutions are really more interested in the picks and shovels approach than they are in buying Bitcoin or Ethereum, right? They want to be invested in the platforms that are the future. And so I would imagine you see quite a bit of that as well.
1: Absolutely. Not just us, but, you know, any anyone that's building uh, the custodians uh, for cryptocurrency, the the trading services, the lending services, um, the services that allow you to send uh, so, for example, also KYC, AML, compliance services, exactly what you mentioned, the picks and shovels are really, really hot in the space right now. And that's reflected, uh, obviously, in, in the valuations and funding capital uh, that's pouring into the space from very, very traditional shops. Uh, and where I think that's, you know, some, something that at least surprised me was seeing some very traditional private equity shops uh, start to come in and make their first cryptocurrency investment, um, which should come out in the next couple of weeks.
0: So all of that said, uh, on a, you know, scale of one to 10 of institutional adoption, where are we on that? On that curve, we always joked in 2017, I look back and I like want to slap myself. Institutions are here. They're driving this right. It's such nonsense. We we didn't even have the tools in place. Right. (laughs) I mean, you think about like a micro strategy buying a bunch of Bitcoin and putting it on a ledger or something because there were no proper custodians. Right. That wasn't going to happen. So let's call that one or zero. Right. Where are we now on that curve to where we get full on institutional interest in, in crypto?
1: I think we're at a six. Uh, So I think we're pretty, uh, pretty far ahead. And the reason I say that is uh, I make a reference to, you know, one of our clients are, you know, one of the largest prop shops, traditional prop shops in the globe. Uh, they called, uh, I would say t- 10 months ago, they were like, hey, we want to buy Bitcoin. And it's like, perfect. Let's give you a Bitcoin address. And why don't we just set up an ETH address so you have it uh, just in case? And they're like, no, just Bitcoin. Uh, you know, we don't we don't want to dabble through anything else. Uh, six months later, they were like, okay, let's, let's start buying some ETH. Um, and then I got a call roughly like Two months ago, and it was something not even top 50 coin. Uh, and so it was like, wait a second, you know, there's a whole number of coins you missed in between one, two, and like number 65, you know. Uh, like how did this happen? And so I think, you know, just, just based on that, the interest that people have once they buy Bitcoin and Ethereum and they start to really understand either the underlying technology, the communities, the applications. Uh, get really, really excited. And so, yeah, I would say we're at a a six, almost seven, uh, just in terms of the enthusiasm from the institutions that have already entered the space.
0: Bitcoin is such a gateway drug. I mean, what you just described is basically (laughs) the path of every retail investor as well. I'll just buy a little Bitcoin, then all of a sudden it's like dog coins, 4,000 down market cap, and you can't understand how they possibly got there. But it's interesting to see that reflected in institutions as well. So we're at a six or seven. What does it take to get to ten? Is that just a matter of interest and comfortability? Is it a matter of risk managers that have been looking at this for three years and finally are coming in, or are there tools that still don't exist that institutions need to feel comfortable investing in this space?
1: I would say it's still tooling. Uh, you know, some of the the larger reasons are, uh, you know, in terms of reporting. Uh, Most traditional financial institutions are used to very uh, specific OEMS systems uh, and reporting for accounting and auditing purposes, as well as, um, you know, I would say regulation on, um, you know, what different um, restrictions on who can access what. Uh, So, for example, one person can access trading, whereas another can access Uh, settlement, so different permissions. Um, I would also say that some other tools that need to evolve in the space are cross-platform collateralization and margin, Uh, and so really capital efficiency. Uh, In general, we've made a lot of progress in the space over the last year, year and a half, but it's still a very capital inefficient space relative to what traditional institutions are used to uh, in traditional markets, and so I would say it's
0: Well, does the ETF solve that in any way, shape or form, or is the futures ETF just suboptimal and not what they're interested in?
1: The futures ETF does not solve that because at the end of the day, it's still not holding the underlying. It's holding the future and they're already trading futures. And so what you're getting is a product that trades, you know, 5% premium to market. Um, and then year end, probably you have a cost of anywhere between 15 to 20% in additional fees, just because of that additional premium and the rollover, uh, whenever the, you know, the expiration hits. And so I don't think it's the best product to market uh, necessarily for anyone who, you know, these institutions are servicing. And so what you've seen is, let's say someone banks with one of these investment banks, they'll likely just go and open an account at an exchange to buy it at spot instead. Right.
0: Sure. Yeah, I was just thinking that perhaps institutions like uh, investment banks would take what they can get and 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 trade it. But I obviously know that that's really not the case. But what you just described is such a suboptimal product, right? I mean, we know that the Bitcoin Bitcoin futures ETF doesn't get us there. GBTC is arguably worse, but uh, has now surpassed GLD, right? The largest gold uh, ETF in assets under management. Does that show that people are willing to basically do anything to get access to this asset, even if it's not in the best manner? One of the most frequent complaints we hear about platforms in the digital asset space is that they're not reliable and trustworthy. That's why I'm so excited to tell you guys about Amber Group. If you don't know about them already, Amber Group is an integrated digital asset platform that serves both retail and institutional clients by providing deep liquidity, attractive yields, and sophisticated portfolio management tools. I talked about them being trustworthy. Well, they have 12 offices on three continents and nearly a trillion dollars in volume Traded. Their leadership team has extensive finance experience from firms like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Citadel, and Bloomberg, and their investors are huge names like Tiger Global, DCM, Paradigm, Pantera, and Coinbase Ventures. They've made heavy investments in cybersecurity, crypto security, and operational security across the firm with regular audits and penetration Testing. They're proactively committed to regulatory compliance in the 100 countries that Amber serves. If you're looking for a platform where you can trade, earn yield, find deep liquidity, and manage your portfolio, look no further than Amber. You can check them out at the wolf of Amber Group. That's the wolf of Amber Group everybody in cryptocurrency already knows about hedera hashcraft it's one of the fastest most secure and trusted networks on the planet but what they might not know about is the h bar foundation with a budget of 2.5 billion Dollars already. They are funding entrepreneurs and projects that want to build on their blockchain and build within the ecosystem. Absolutely incredible. And they're not only giving them funding, they're actually helping them to develop it and then to get the word out as well. You guys should check out the HBAR Foundation and what Hedera Hashgraph is doing. You can do all of that at the wolf of all dot link slash HBAR. That is the wolf of all dot link slash HBAR. Do it now you're servicing these companies, you have to have some deep insight into what's happening with regulation. Is that for you one of the major barriers when you talk to your clients who are just asking, we need some clarity before we can touch this asset? And are you confident that we will get something sensible? I mean, it's my feeling that people are less afraid now of bad regulation. They just want any regulation so they have clarity and understand what framework they're working with
1: it. Uh, we are all working with, you know, the information that we have, I would say it's definitely top of mind for everyone. Um, You know, you know, many folks, whether you just have to be mindful about like, what can you trade relative to where your traders are sitting um, and the entities uh, that they are compliant with. Um, But otherwise it's, it's, we have rules uh, that we can currently work on today. Um, And the rest is just a, It depends on, you know, how fast we can get the regulators to push out new, clear regulation.
0: In a perfect world, what would that regulation be? I know that we don't live in a perfect world and we don't get it, right? But what would would the ideal situation be from regulators uh, for a company like FalconX?
1: I think uh, broader than just Falcon X and for the entire industry would be, you know, even if we think about what just happened with the infrastructure bill, uh, I think, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, the the biggest thing is just thinking about definitions and how we define what is a node, uh, what is a brokerage, uh, what is a trading provider. Um, What is, you know, what needs money transmission licenses and licenses across states and countries? Um, And uh, and then where does, you know, one regulatory body sit? So whether it's the CFTC, the SEC, commodities, et cetera. Like, I think right now we're just trying to figure out who regulates what um, and then what are they regulating? And then custody is going to be the biggest piece. Right. Uh, And then, you know, stable coins. Um, how can we make sure that we have $1 for every stablecoin in circulation, auditing, et cetera, um, best practices? So all of these just need to be really uh, written out and laid out for for not only you know, folks like FalconX, but even decentralized companies um, to make sure that obviously you know at the end of the day, the SEC is just trying to, to do its job and protect uh, investors. The travel rule, for example, is, is something not to be messed with. Um, So you don't want to engage uh, with anyone on the blacklist or terrorist list. And so, you know, these are these are things that they're just uh, trying to protect not only retail investors and institutional investors, but also the U.S. So I think just a new framework that's very, very clear, um, which I think, you know, these regulatory bodies are doing right now in the form uh, of just, uh, you know, requesting information from all of these companies. But um, we'll hope to see that, you know, hopefully in the next year or so
0: things move so fast in this industry, though, like even as somebody I think who is pretty much has my mind on it 24 seven, I can't remotely keep up. So I guess I have to sympathize to some degree with regulators who are trying to put these uh, systems into place to protect people. And the industry looks completely different. Six months later, when they've already done their diligence on what it looked like when they started, I have a feeling that things are just going to get so far out ahead of them. That uh, a lot of the regulation that they're trying to establish now will be almost irrelevant by that time. I mean, if, if it takes two or three or four years to get a spot ETF approved, people are going to have long since found ways to gain access to this asset and not care about a spot ETF.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's a it's a really interesting problem. How do you create a framework for something that evolves as quickly as cryptocurrency? Like it's a it's a really hard problem to solve. and so. I, I give regulators a ton of credit for having to work on this every single day. Now we're building the metaverse, we're building NFTs, you know, I mean, are these securities, how do you apply a security framework to uh, these new types of technologies? And so um, I think it's, it's just a really hard question to solve. And so, you know, the more um, folks that we also get from crypto into these regulatory bodies will be more beneficial for us as well too, um, to help you know, speed these things along um, in terms of just the learning curve as these things, you know, push out and as these new technologies get launched.
0: Yeah, I mean, the infrastructure bill is a perfect reflection of what you just said, right? we you have the Senate Congress. they're largely older people, you know, baby boomers, probably very little uh, understanding of the asset at all. And they're the ones who are legislating on it. And then you have like three senators who understand it and are actually trying to do the work. But how damaging is that when, the infrastructure bill that there could have very easily been a compromise gets passed, gets signed. And now, as of now, the law of the land is extremely damaging, if taken literally, correct? So how 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 much risk is our industry at because of that bill?
1: Yeah, so I would say a couple of things. With regards to the infrastructure bill, it was the first time that you saw bipartisan agreement on cryptocurrency. And so I think by and large, it was actually a really positive marketing brand uh, exercise for us in terms of just getting crypto at the forefront and really one of the accelerants for this massive bull market that we've seen seven weeks of uh, until the small correction this morning. Uh, So I I would say, you know, the first is just how much attention crypto got, right? Like, you know, it it got to the point where, you know, things were Moving because cryptocurrency was at the forefront and it was pulling all the headlines. So I think that's a pretty cool place to be the second is uh, this law doesn't go into effect for a number of years so I believe. Uh, 2024. And so, um, you know, until then, there's so much time uh, for us to get our act together, organize uh, lobbying groups, and really focus on ways that we can push better, uh, more specific regulation out there. Um, And also just have conversations with our congressmen. I think, you know, one of the things that we should probably all be doing is uh, making trips out to Washington. Uh, And so, you know, that's the next level of cooperation I'm super excited to see is really get the right spokespeople in front of these folks uh, to continue having these conversations. uh, So it doesn't lead to something like what we saw in the infrastructure bill.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're already seeing uh, Lummis and Toomey proposing a bill to amend that language. And I think that everyone, understands it's sensible it's just not at the top of their minds obviously we as an industry think that this should be the most important thing in the bill it's basically a couple sentences in a 1.2 trillion dollar piece of legis legislation so it makes sense that this would have to be somewhat solved afterwards i think and i think you brought to light something really important is that this doesn't go into effect for another two or three years people are panicking as if it's now the law and this is going to happen but Two or three years is twenty to thirty years in any other industry. If you're in crypto,
1: right? Exactly. Just heads down, keep building. I think, you know, we're we're gonna figure this out. Um, so I think as long as we continue, that the really the biggest thing is just urging the industry to work together to have one narrative uh, that we can push out, as opposed to a <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as opposed to, I mean, I, I talked about labels, right? We also have uh, many, many, many narratives, but we really just need a narrative we can all kind of stand behind around what the right definitions should be and the framework should be um, so that it can it can get much more organized.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're as tribal as it gets, I would say, between the maximalists for each coin and those who think one thing's a scam or another thing is obviously like uh, sent down from from the gods to to, to bless the universe. So what is that one single message that we unite behind in theory? And listen, the infrastructure bill did do it for a while there, right? So Mm -hmm. I kind of laugh, but uh, nobody expected a a bill in Washington to be basically frozen for three or four days because of a few simple lines on cryptocurrency. And we all came together with no lobby and no super PACs and no anything and, and actually froze that. So it can happen. I laugh, but it can happen. But what is the narrative that we should all get behind collectively, regardless which community we are, that would be the most compelling to to push this forward?
1: Listen, I am by no means a lawyer, uh, or a regulatory expert. (laughs) So I'll keep this as broad as it gets. But, uh, what I will say is, is really focusing again, going back to the earlier point, really focusing on, uh, you know, who is the brokerage and who is the node and service provider and who needs to be regulated by what body, Uh, regulatory body, right? So who uh, needs to be regulated to focus on securities versus commodities? What are those? Um, And then moving from there uh, across, you know, who needs to report and get audited on different transactions? Um, And then whether or not, you know, you know, all the way down to nodes, whether or not those need to fall into that definition.
0: So screaming about uh, Bitcoin being a great inflation hedge isn't going to get us there. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I <laughs> guess, no. in this case, whether true or
0: not. So not you, you mentioned that you uh, worked for Dan or with Dan Moorhead at Pantera. Actually, he was one of the more vocal people recently on the launch of the ETF, something that we talked about. I think his quote, I can't remember specifically, was like, somebody please uh, call me the day before the Bitcoin futures ETF launches so that I can take a bit of risk off the table, something like that. He obviously has a somewhat sinister view um, on the what the Bitcoin futures ATF really means. I spoke with Mark Yusko uh, recently. He had the same view. He didn't think that it was a charitable uh, happening by any stretch. He thought that this was just another way for the government and Wall Street to control it. I mean, what's your view on, on that? Do you think that this is something that they want to kind of just slowly uh, kill off by creating these suboptimal products? Or do you think that It was just the easiest thing to get through it and keep people quiet. I'm of the latter. I think that the Bitcoin futures ETF was just sort of a layup. They threw everybody a bone and now we can move on with our lives.
1: Listen, I mean, the CME, you know, has shown and proven that Bitcoin futures has volumes. It's a profitable business for them. They've been able to do it really successfully uh, and there's demand. And so I think, you know, that was enough to get the uh, Bitcoin futures ETF launched. you know, I I we love negative headlines, uh, but I think because we move so fast, we we fail sometimes to take a second to just reflect on how great you know even getting an ETF futures across the table okay. is, right? And it it honestly was one of the reasons we were able to hit all time highs in some of these tokens, uh, in Q you know end of Q3 into Q4, and so I think. You know, it was really, really good. Again, it's all about accessibility. At the end of the day, there are some institutions that just cannot, you know, open an account with, you know, Falcon X or Coinbase. Uh, today, they need to be able to access these in a traditional uh, aspect like the Bitcoin ETF. And so if that's, you know, the way that they're going to access it, then that's great. And I think at the end of the day, right, we there's only a limited number supply of Bitcoin. So, uh, you know, it, it helps all of us in the space who were early uh, to continue making that accessibility wider. Yeah, I
0: think to your point, a lot of people view this bull run as a result of hype around an impending ETF approval. So we saw that happen. Do you think that there's another catalyst coming or that we need another catalyst for that next sort of push into the bull market. I mean, there's obviously this Q4 is always good expectation, but that doesn't mean it has to happen again this time, right? You see the stock to flow model and we'll be at 98k in two weeks and all these things. What's going to push us there? Do we need another catalyst, another big piece of news? Is there something you guys are watching for on the horizon?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, we had a small correction this morning and that's bound to happen. You can't have really have a bull market going, uh, you know, three months uh, straight up. It's it's not always up. People are going to want to take profits off the table. And so we'll likely see some volatility going into the new year. Uh, that said, to your point, you know, holiday season, people tend to gift Bitcoin. You tend to see like Google search for crypto spike around Thanksgiving, around Christmas, when people come home with their families, especially now, you know, with COVID and, and traveling just increased uh, and COVID fears, I would say, kind of decreased with more vaccinations. Um, you know, more people are going to be around others. And so you'll you'll probably see that pattern happen again. What I will say in terms of uh, what we're looking at and and even just broader is that, you know, where this has become really interesting is I think uh, part of this bull market was also relative to NFTs and gaming and really cryptocurrency being larger than finance. I think, you know, to start, we always thought about, all right, You know, the Bitcoin white paper was created in after the 2008 financial crisis, uh, and that was the trigger for just peer to peer trustless financial systems. How do we build that? But now we've been able to find uh, a really scalable use case for crypto, uh, whether in gaming, whether in art, um, that, you know, has really expanded the audience. Far more than, you know, the the finance scope, because if you think about it, like how many people are actually going to yield farm and how many people are going to, you know, try to try to figure out how to stake assets. I mean, these are these are not easy. The UX UI of many of these products are still pretty poor, uh, to say the least. Um, And even like KYC AML for some of these exchanges are just such a headache uh, to go through that most people won't do it. And so I think, you know, today, the ability to do like play to earn gaming um, and just art, which really, you know, caught, I think, some unique Unique communities uh, really built out that scope for us and expanded. So I would I would keep an eye there um, to see if there's any anything new that will really again whatever expands the in you know community of people who now access uh, the underlying you know technology is is really the trigger.
0: Yeah, you just touched on something so important, which is we've been talking about institutional adoption, but mainstream adoption and getting your average person comfortable with this asset is very difficult when the UX UI is so poor, right? And so I still think that we lack the tools or the platforms that your average person who knows nothing about the space would be comfortable using, right? Don't you think we need, you said it before, you want it to be as comfortable as your Schwab account or as your PayPal account or any of these things that people are just comfortable with and know how to use. I think that's a huge challenge. I don't know if you agree.
1: Oh, it is a huge challenge. I think, you know, PayPal acquired Curve, uh, what was it, eight months ago? They just launched uh, the Buy Crypto in Venmo uh, a few weeks ago. And so, I mean, this takes time. Um, This kind of technology is is just really hard to build um, and to build on top of. There's lots of checks and balances. There's no FDIC insurance, right? So if you send it to the wrong wallet, like you're done. Um, And so, and these Uh, These wallets, I mean, even before like ENS uh, and the .eth wallet addresses, I mean, these wallets are uh, like a number of letters and numbers and you're double checking each time to make sure you entered the right thing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely even not even, I mean, one thing it's bad for retail, but even the institutions that we deal with today, they're like, oh man, this is tough, right? And and that's why you get, yeah, that's why you get the, that's why you get the yield and the opportunities that you can in the space, because it's still a very clunky, uh, infrastructure and space to be working in.
0: Yeah, I mean, you talked about the capital inefficiencies being a problem, but for institutions or people trading or working in the those are probably really where the opportunities lie. So the question is, once the infrastructure is actually fully in place and those inefficiencies are either you know, programmed or arbitraged away, do we still see the massive upside in crypto that we saw before or these opportunities for institutions to basically... I mean, let's be real. They're making like market-making, arbitrage, cash-and-carry, trading the GBTC premium when it existed, this was free money, right? I mean, it was free money for these institutions, almost risk-free, free free money. Is that going to be eliminated from the system eventually?
1: Everything's going to be eliminated from the system eventually. No opportunities in the market are forever. And so I think, you know, as you expand accessibility, this will naturally happen. But I I also think about it in the same way, like, you know, your classic yield farming example, right? When, When you have a a protocol that is basically using dollars or their tokens to incentivize people to post uh, capital on their protocol, Um, that only lasts a certain amount of time, right? And so it's a high yield for a certain amount of time, and then it compresses. And so similarly, with the GBTC premium, you saw it, you know, everyone poured into that, Uh, They thought it was free money, a lot of people went unhedged, and then it immediately, you know, flipped to a discount, um, because it was, it had so much demand. And so I think uh, nothing, nothing is free, um, and no opportunity is forever. Uh, And that's really where, you know, you start to see, uh, you know, who are the good Traders uh versus you know the ones that aren't. And we're all gonna get rugged at some point. And so um, <laughs> we've all been yeah, rugged at
0: some point. Already. <laughs> we,
1: we, we've all been rugged. Uh and so as long as we learn from that and and move on. But yeah, I think you know it's gonna be what's so interesting is and and that's what keeps the space so 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 interesting, is that you know, there's so many new opportunities that keep popping up. Um, and that's what you're recycling through, and, and that's what you have to kind of stay on your toes to continue to to watch and and keep on top of.
0: Yeah, it's uh, easy to see who the uh, good traders are when the bear market hits, right? Everyone's a genius in a bull market and what seems like a free trade uh, gets very ugly when it flips, right? And we've seen even some of the larger platforms, the c platforms, we've seen their yields basically disappear because uh, pro- most likely because their trading desk uh, had that very problem, right? It was relying on something that seemed uh, like it would last forever and then doesn't. But I still think that even with those platforms, the ability to earn yield when we have effectively negative interest rates in your bank uh, is still the biggest, one of the biggest things, selling points for for mainstream adoption. I have friends, you know, Wall Street guys and people I went to Penn with uh, who I could never get to buy Bitcoin, but it was a very quick light bulb for them when I said, but you can park USDC on this platform and get 10%, right? I mean, that, mm-hmm. that was the gateway. I always thought Bitcoin would be the gateway. And then to what you said before, then you get you know NBA Top Shot and NFTs and now Metaverse. These are all things that are really, really accessible to your average person and I think are what is going to drive sort of the next wave. I don't know if you agree if there's anything specific that you're excited about, but like the gaming Metaverse space now after seeing the DeFi summer and the NFT summer seems like a very compelling use case. It's going to bring a lot of people.
1: One hundred percent. At the end of the day, people want their money to work for them, right? And so, if you're looking at, you know, your Marcus account and it has zero point five percent in yield, and then you look at, you know, Terra Luna and it has uh, twenty percent yield on uh, their stablecoin UST, uh, then you start to ask yourself questions in terms of, you know, am I comfortable taking protocol risk in smart contract risk in order to get the twenty percent? And for many people, it is yes. Um, And so I think 100%, the, you know, the tokenization of dollars uh, and the ability to provide yield um, and that yield being just higher because it's a 24-7 market is huge. And so uh, that is already in itself, you know, a very, very large adoption mechanism. The second is uh, gaming is a massive industry. And so the ability for you to make money when you game is Huge, and so you know you're seeing actually all of the gaming, large traditional gaming uh, shops actually open up a crypto centric um, desk or, or shop, and you know hire people in order to start to look at tokenization internally. That's going to be really really big as well too, um, and the ability too to, to <clears throat> move different uh, different um, collectibles into gaming is also big. So if you think about just collectibles, you mentioned NBA Top Shot. um, But even if you think about like, for example, the Louis Vuitton uh, bags, someone actually mentioned this to me. And I thought this was really interesting. Louis Vuitton is actually uh, very, very focused on being able to create an NFT of their original bags, because typically what happens is someone buys a bag, and then maybe they're they're use the bag for a year and they resell it and that bag gets resold up to 20 times. And Louis Vuitton doesn't get any, any portion of the reselling price. And so if they're able at the initial uh, sell, to provide an NFT to the first owner, that NFT then progressively moves seller by seller. And each time that it gets resold, Louis Vuitton gets a portion of that reselling price. And so they're now much more okay with their bags being resold in the secondary market. And so a lot of these, even like merchandise uh, commodities shops um, are looking at NFTs as a way to uh, you know, continue to make, um, Money off of reselling. And so similarly, you're seeing that with music, and that's a huge industry as I well. right say,
0: what a, a huge industry. I mean, I used to actually be a musician for about twenty years. Right. and uh, yeah, good luck getting paid your royalty check within six months and and you know, it's being done by sound scan, which is monitoring radio stations. <laughs> it's It's absurd, right? And so much simpler uh, if those royalties can be paid out through a smart contract or you get you know, the secondary sales as you mentioned. And once you sort of start going down this rabbit hole of possibilities, I mean, you talk about LVMH, right? they're one of the biggest companies in the world, Louis Vuitton. And not only will they attach an NFT to a handbag, but they're going to be selling their merchandise in the metaverse, right? Correct. And so, so not only now do we have sort of physical goods in the physical world, But you'll be able I mean, I'm pretty confident you'll be able to go to a Louis Vuitton store somewhere in the metaverse and purchase something. And maybe when you purchase the NFT of the bag, the real one arrives at your house, you know, but once you go down this rabbit hole, it's pretty insane the possibilities for these brands.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's a marketing at that point, it becomes a marketing game. And so, you know, Coca-Cola invested money into the metaverse, a number of these large brands are pouring money. And I always say, follow, follow where the the trail of money goes. Right. And so if all of these, you know, companies are pouring marketing and branding dollars and budget into the metaverse, there's something happening here that people may not be realizing, you know, Facebook has spent so much money acquiring companies. Right. They just changed their name to Meta. I mean, you know, we, for us, especially in this industry where we want to make sure that this is decentralized, I think it's even more of a notion of, uh, you know, (laughs) trying to come up on top, but I mean, this is big news, Uh, and so this is all going to be a trigger because within all of this are going to be free-flowing economies uh, where you can move assets across these different platforms interchangeably. I mean, the interoperability of all of this is so exciting um, that you can suddenly really take something and move it anywhere right, anywhere, regardless of where you are. And just thinking about like the opportunities too for someone maybe in a developing country Uh, to be able to, you know, speak to someone in the metaverse, maybe even join, like, work. There are some companies where you have offices in the metaverse, uh, and so you can go into, you know, the meta office. Um, So I think this is all really, really cool. And, you know, in terms of the institutional side, like, there is very much interest in these token names. And so we're seeing a number of, you know, interest in Axie, Sand, um, as well as like other gaming platforms and metaverse Mana, I'm names, sure. yeah. Mana, right? And so you know these are these are names that people are following very very closely, even on the on the trading desk and institutional side.
0: So much to unpack, right? I mean, would you want to live in the Zuckerverse or a decentralized metaverse? I think we we all know the answer to that. And you talk about uh, the interest in these. I mean, Axie Infinity is literally supporting families in the Philippines right? I mean, people who have quit their jobs to play Axie Infinity. And if you look at it, or if you look at even what's being presented by Facebook for the metaverse, it still looks like The Sims or something from the 1990s, mm-hmm. right? So if we're literally out here playing like Pokemon and Tamagotchi and getting adoption, imagine when it's at the level of the Fortnites and Call of Duties. And that's what the metaverse looks like when it looks realistic. Mm-hmm. It's astounding to me that when you look at it, it's not that impressive right now, the, the current iterations, but it's still being adopted. So imagine what that's going to be like when it actually catches up technologically to the interest.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I I mean, uh, so I love Sims. So that <laughs> I'm I'm the wrong you audience. Too. I was a yeah. huge fan of Sims. Right. Um, never progressed into the the Fortnite, but um, I would imagine it's a much much better game. Uh, I mean, Axie Infinity. To your point, right? It's not a. A great game either right now, and I I played Decentraland, and I really tried to give it a shot, and there was nothing to do. You know, um, you could go to the casino, but uh, there's definitely like outside of that, there was really not much to do. So yes, 100 percent like very very early stages, and this stuff takes a lot of time. The other problem too is it takes a lot of money, uh, and so you know to create these game developing shops, it takes a it's very capital intensive, uh, and so you know right now it's you, you know, if you look at how much money is being invested into this stuff, a lot of these shops, a lot of funds are actually creating like gaming uh, funds specifically, so they can allocate capital to um, just creating games because that is so capital intensive. Um, but I, I think you know this is uh, super, super, super exciting, and uh, it's going to be interesting. You know what what moves, and and how does uh, stuff communicate from you know the real world and real world assets today to whatever is going to be in the metaverse?
0: And uh, this seems to be like the topic that comes up the end of every podcast now is the metaverse. No matter what we start <laughs> talking about, we end up in the metaverse and sort of just riffing on what the, the possibilities are. I think they're they're really endless. Just to circle back to, to the beginning before we're done, we talked about getting from six to 10 before, and we talked about what tools maybe would be necessary. What's a theoretical timeline for that to happen. At what point does Bitcoin and crypto just become another asset and we're not out here defending it and telling people that it's not going to zero and that it's not a scam and that it's not tulips? At what point does it just become such a, you know, in time, does it become such a normal part of the conversation that it's just another asset that people own?
1: To be honest, I think Bitcoin's almost there. I would give Bitcoin another like Six to eight months. At the end of the day, Bitcoin is a store of value, right? We just went through the taproot upgrade. There's going to be ways in which we can actually store more into Bitcoin with the Lightning Network. Uh, but Bitcoin is a store of value. It's digital gold. And I think we're, we're there, you know, in, in six to eight months, there will be no question about that. Now, as it pertains to Ethereum and all of the other uh, layer one Out there and the tokens associated with them, you know, for that, I think it's going to take at least a year or two. And the reason I say that is because we're using these tokens for transaction purposes. And for us to get to, you know, the Visa and the uh, MasterCard. Uh, transaction per second, that's going to take infrastructure that just needs much more time scale developers and capital uh, that we have, you know, more more so than we've uh, given them credit for. So I, I think we'll still see a year or two there. And I think that's also where, um, you know, a lot of the institutional focus is now uh, too. You know, if you think about like where, where should I park my money and how, you know, where's going to be the, the most upside relative to growth of the space? If you think about, you have your, your store value, your digital gold, but then you have your transactions um, and your infrastructure layer there. I think uh, a lot of focus is now on the layer ones in addition to Ethereum. So I think, you know, at least a year or two on, on that side. Uh,
0: that's faster than I would have imagined. I, I get people who are like, oh, 10 years. So I I, I, I tend to agree with you that it's more of a a year or two. So before we go, any other final thoughts, things I might not have touched on that are interesting you at the moment or that you're excited about?
1: This has been great. I think, you know, the largest thing, I can't emphasize this enough, when you think about crypto being larger than finance, Everything, the whole the whole world is an opportunity for you really to adopt this technology in a peer to peer way that's trustless, right? Every single thing. And so I think as we start to see this industry progress into other industries, uh, outside of finance, outside of gaming and art, there's so much more. We're going to see it in logistics, which we've already seen yeah. in enterprise. We're going to see it in climate. Um, you know, there's there's so many ways we're going to see it in voting. There's so many ways that we can really use this technology uh, in scalable uh, ways that I think we've been toying with these ideas uh, to start and hopefully now uh, we can start to really see mainstream, we always talk about this, another label, mainstream adoption, uh, once it really infiltrates, you know, some of these other uh, industries, but I'm very excited for that.
0: Awesome. Well, where can everybody find you after this conversation and follow along with what what you're doing?
1: Sure. So uh, if you want to reach out via email, my email is aya at falconx.io. And then Twitter, aya underscore cantor is where you can find me. I really, really thank you for the time, Scott, today. Thank you.
0: That was amazing. And once again, like I said, end up in the metaverse, no matter what happens. If if the trajectory yes. of my podcast has anything to do with the trajectory of the crypto industry, <laughs> then I know that we need to all invest very, very heavily in the
1: metaverse. <laughs> Our next meeting will be in Decentraland. I'll see you there.
0: <laughs> it will, and it'll look like The Sims. <laughs> thank, thank you once again for taking the time. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you.